Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. Today I'm speaking with Marie Dennis about the importance of peace at all times, and especially amid a pandemic. Marie Dennis is a senior advisor to Pax Christi International's Secretary General and a member of the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative Executive Committee to the Vatican. She previously served as co-president of Pax Christi International. Marie is in close and regular contact with the Vatican about issues surrounding COVID and peace. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Soul of a Nation, dear friend, Marie Dennis. Thank you, Jim. I'm very glad to be with you. So let me start with this question, Marie. How's your spirit? How's your spirit in these days? My spirit is probably about like everyone else's. On the one hand, these are very difficult days. It is heartbreaking to see the very deep, deep suffering uh, that is the reality for so many people in our own city, in our own country, and very much around the world. So mm, that's pretty hard. On the other hand, as also has been said so often, the evidence of good people who are stepping up to the needs in their own communities and also around the world is inspiring. And so it does give me hope. I live in a community with 14 other people and that goodness and generosity shows up every day in our community. I guess there's one other piece that is affecting how I'm feeling right now. And that is the the evidence that we're seeing that a drastic change needs to take place in the way our systems and the structures of our country and our world are put together. We have seen exposed, as perhaps never before, levels of poverty, of hunger. We see that people uh, who are vulnerable, made vulnerable by poverty, by unemployment, by a lack of a good place to live and on and on, are the most vulnerable to this disease. So my feelings are up and down, up and down right now. You know, uh, which you point to, I often feel so many days where if you watch the White House press briefing, for example, you walk away so discouraged or alarmed or just, just how dangerous the leadership we're seeing is. And yet then you see or hear or feel what people are doing close at hand or around the world and it really is encouraging. It just lifts your spirit to see while government isn't working, in my view, at the federal level, the top levels on this, civil society really is in many ways and places, and the faith community is part of that, and how people are doing things that aren't systemic solutions to all of this, but are incredibly hopeful signs of what people like us and those close to us and those we care about can do in circumstances as difficult and dangerous as these. Exactly, yes. So Marie, you've been a friend for a long time. You have been a leader of international peace movements for many decades. I think you're on the first board of Sojourners a long time ago. So we have been friends and colleagues and working alongside, standing alongside, walking, acting, sometimes getting arrested alongside. In a recent article, you said something that really struck me. I wanted to read it slowly and carefully that people hear it, and then I'd like you to say more about this. Here's what Marie Dennis said. 
spending hundreds of billions of dollars annually on weapons and preparations for war has not given us the tools to address a global pandemic. In fact, military spending steals resources from providing for healthy, resilient communities across the country and around the world that can slow the spread of disease and more quickly recover from serious threats like the COVID-19 pandemic. How does that really explain so much of what's going on and what does advocating for peace look like at a time like this? There are many answers to that question, Jim. I would begin by saying what I have heard you say many times, which is that a budget is a moral document. And what we are seeing now, just using the example of the budget of the United States of America over the last decades, what we have seen is that our priorities have been preparations for war, investment in uh, the tools of war. And we have intentionally or blindly underfunded all of the other tools that we need that would, in fact, respond to the real threats that we have at this point in history. I would say, for example, at a very fundamental level, uh, the way we understand security has been national security guaranteed by the biggest weapons and the most destructive force that we could imagine. When in reality, our experience at a human level is that real security comes from having the basics of, of life available to us, a decent place to live, food on the table, uh, good education, good health care, access to a community and to, to friendships and so on. I think that what we're seeing in this pandemic is the result of a distorted sense of priorities for years in our own country, and that is echoed in the rest of the world. So uh, what, we're, what we're seeing is the need to rethink what we mean by security and talk about security uh, in a different way. We experience that. We've been told, and so we have an, an, an idea and an intellectual sort of framework that says security means weapons, security means killing. But our, our experience, and I would bet this is true for almost every person, is that our, that our real security comes from a completely different place. So maybe re-examining that basic word security and what that is and feels like could be a consequence of a pandemic like this. I certainly hope so. I know that it's certainly a topic of conversation that is coming up in many places. As you mentioned in the introduction, I have been part of a task force that has been working with the Vatican to try to articulate the issues that are most important for the church to be lifting up in this time of a terrible pandemic. And uh, I think the very first issue that I brought up, that I wrote about, but also that others on this task force raised was exactly that. What do we mean by security? And how do we rethink our understanding of security so that we then change our lives and shape our priorities, especially of our public structures, our government, and so on, according to a new definition of security? 
our investment in healthcare, our investment in the safety of children, the reducing, ending hunger, reducing food insecurity, and on and on and on. So yeah, I think that this is an opportunity to really think about how do we think about security. And I, I also believe that as people of faith, that we know that security uh, comes from another place, that it doesn't come, doesn't even come from great wealth. It comes from our relationships, from who we are, and that we all, everyone, has an opportunity to live a dignified life. You know, several people who've done these podcasts have brought us back to what uh, you and I have heard before, that the Chinese symbol for crisis is a combination of their two symbols for danger and opportunity. I've heard that again and again. And you're saying this crisis could be an opportunity to rethink and reimagine rethink and reimagine what security really means. I believe that at this time, that is absolutely, as you said, a a time of both danger and opportunity, that we, um, by being observant of the experience that we're having right now, we can begin to see how to imagine a new way of being. So, for example, we have had this absolutely incredible experience of sharing the pain with people on every in every corner of the world of having the same objective to try to understand how we can respond to the threat of the coronavirus what is very clear is that isolation nationalism unilateralism undercut the cooperation necessary for addressing this kind of a threat We know, if we look around a little farther, that that is also true of the threat of climate change, for example. Unless we all work together to figure out how to do it, we will never deal with that kind of a threat and so many other threats that are completely oblivious to the national borders that we've we've erected. And so, for example, one part of this new thinking that needs to be done, this creativity and imagination restructuring I believe, has to be a very deep look at the sort of parameters of the way we define our societies, what we think of as as my community. We live in a global community now, and we have to act that way. So it's, it's actually a, a fascinating opportunity. You know, it's speaking of fascinating, another woman who did a podcast like this, also a global leader like you are, but from Latin America, Ruth Padilla divorced. When we got talking about the same thing, I said, how's it going for you? She says, well, I live in Costa Rica, and my government decided not to have an army several years ago. Instead, we put our security into healthcare, education. So here, we're doing quite differently and actually quite better than you are in the U.S. or some other places because we have a healthcare system. and." an educational system that was able to respond to this and we're taking care of each other actually pretty well. This is a government that decided not to have an army, but to put their security in other ways. And she was, you know, instead of saying, oh, it's terrible in the global social, no, no, we're doing quite well here in Costa Rica. It was a great example of what you're talking about. Yes, it absolutely is. Um, In many ways, I think the kind of reimagining that you're talking about, it is Yes, it's very immediate, and it has to do with some of the very 
hard struggles in our own society about, for example, are we ever going to decide that actually providing a good quality health care and a good quality education is good for everyone, that if we don't do that, that we all will pay the price. But we also think that at, at a very deep level, that this crisis, this pandemic is pointing in a direction that reveals a very deep kind of violence in our world and in our society. So yes, the violence we we can see very quickly that comes from you know, war or street violence and so on. But the other violence that I think is very clear right now is the structural and systemic violence of economic injustice, poverty, of environmental destruction, of ecological injustice, of marginalization, racism, all of the ways that uh, we do violence to each other and to the planet that we live on by the way we run our society, by the way we've put together our political system, our economic system, and so on. We have some serious work to do in all of those areas. And I think this is an incredible opportunity to at least be able to see the need more clearly than we ever have and to begin to imagine what would happen if we actually made an effort to reshape our society following an image of nonviolence, of wholeness of of healing of ensuring that every person in our in our society and in the world again has what they need for a dignified life and i think that that very fundamental framework is of the idea of moving from violence to nonviolence is a way of looking at this moment that is is really important it's not the only way to look at it but i think it becomes clearer and clearer that if we are if we are pushing immigrants back across the border into mexico and we are and we're doing it by law by whatever or lack of law but in any case we have the ability to do that but the violence that we're perpetrating in the lives of the families who are trying to get to a place that's safe if we look at the statistics in our own country where people of color are more, much more likely to be affected by the coronavirus, what is that saying to us? It's saying one more time that we live in a society where our systems, our way of being at a very deep level is profoundly racist. So we have to figure out how do we change the way we live together so that we ne- never ever believe that it is that any human being is disposable that um jim i remember you i must be 20 years ago speaking about school systems where in the same city and this was and and sadly in some places is still the case in this country where in 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 one part of the city the schools will be terrible and another part of the city they'll be extraordinary i remember you talking about that was sort of the underlying belief that allows that to happen, that some human beings are simply disposable. And it doesn't matter if, in fact, it makes the life better for everyone if they are simply swept off the stage. I think that this virus and this pandemic is demonstrating that kind of injustice and inequality in a way that we cannot ignore. We just can't ignore it. If you, if you look at the recent 
report from the World Food Organizations and the, the sort of major institutions that are looking at food security. Before the coronavirus pandemic, they were saying that we were heading into a time of famine in many parts of the world. That reality is like the it's like the stage on which this pandemic is playing out. And so we have many places where there is no ability to deal with the threat of this of this virus. The real tragedy is that we may not be able to do anything about that with a short enough turnaround that we can make a difference in the lives of of those people who are being devastated by this virus. But we certainly had better pay attention so that as we move into a post-pandemic future, we understand that a radical shift in the way we have structured our society, everything from uh, trade agreements and commodities markets to educational programs to the way we deal with almost any basic human need, from food to education to and on and on, that we have got to look at what we have done and and begin to restructure so that we tap into the beauty that we're seeing all around us, where people are willingly, for the most part, stepped out of normal days activity and are isolating ourselves for the common good. You know, many people who are doing acts of kindness, how do we tap back into that and deal with the, with the brokenness that is so evident? The word from that that report that you just named uh, just came out a few days ago that has stayed with me is the word double. This pandemic would double, could double the hunger in the world. This pandemic, that word has just stayed with me for days. This could do that. And yet it could wake us up to see, as you said just so well, that do we want to keep living this way? I mean, aren't these things that we've accepted or tolerated or ignored, aren't these things that really could be changed? You're known as an international peacemaker, peace activist, peacemaker, I would say. So I have to ask you, what do you think that peace, peace, what you've lived your life for, will be relegated to a lower civic priority during our global pandemic? Or do you think our universal suffering here will make peace even more achievable and accessible? Well, I think that the possibilities as we move through this pandemic and hopefully come out on the other side are many and in sort of opposite directions. So on the one hand, the generosity and spirit of community and attention to the common good that we are seeing in our neighborhoods. And, and that I think that's reflected wherever in, the, wherever in the world it's possible. That's the, the raw material of more peaceful society. But we also know that this pandemic is creating enormous anxiety, tensions, fear, suffering, and that it is also possible that in some places, maybe in many places, that we will see an increase in violence. Some tragic examples around, we were just talking about food insecurity. When people are in competition with each other to 
acquire the basic necessities for their family, the potential for conflict is very high and it's a very difficult situation. But of course, that's also the reason why the the skills of peace building, uh, nurturing uh, peace at a very real local community level are so important. So all of the efforts, all of the skills that that go into building peace are more needed now than ever, whether they will be tended to. I know they will be by many communities and organizations. It's liable to be a, a very, very challenging time. So there are real concerns, as you just have clarified, about the outbreak of violence and war, both during and in the immediate aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. So how is the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative in the Vatican thinking about addressing those very threats? I It seems to me, Jim, that there is a short-term answer to that question and a long-term answer to that question. In the, in the short term, it is very important, for example, that any aid that is given, whether it's locally in our own country or you know, in and internationally, is given with an understanding of the potential for conflict. So conflict sensitivity as part of an aid package is extremely important. Being attentive to the rescue packages that we're seeing go through our own Congress and similar packages in other parts of the world to the best of their ability should be conflict aware. They should be, we should be aware that by the aid that we give, uh, by the rescue packages that we create, that it's not acceptable to favor one class over another, one ethnic or racial group over another, one political party over another, one sector of a society over another. Another, I think, is the need for accurate information. So one of the realities that we've all seen come out with a vengeance around the pandemic has been rumors and disinformation. And that can also be a cause, a spark for violent conflict. And so in just making sure to the best of our ability that good, accurate information is available to everyone everywhere is really important. I think the other, another sort of looking in a slightly different direction is we need to make sure that in countries or in regions where there are political authorities, governments that have a propensity for concentrated power and control, that we are very attentive to the the way that these extraordinary measures are uh, for isolation and so on are rolled out and then uh, maintained. So it, there is a very significant concern that in some places, in some countries, hopefully not in our own, but you just don't know, that the political authorities will not take advantage of efforts to slow what reduce the the, the number of uh, COVID-19 cases by extreme social control measures, which are absolutely in place all over the world, how those are maintained, uh, what, what kind of uh, enforcement measures are instituted needs serious attention. There are places where police or military authorities uh, have killed people for breaking the isolation regulations. There are many places where uh, human rights protectors 
uh, whether it has anything to do with the, with the coronavirus or not, are um, increasingly threatened. So we're in countries where uh, environmental activists are already threatened or in places where the press is threatened. Uh, we need to be very attentive to the possibility of escalating abuse in some of those areas. Same is true in, in a number of places where extremist groups, th- there is concern that extremist groups might escalate their activities in the context of the pandemic. Uh, we need to be attentive to that, but attentive to it not by ratcheting up military force or armed police, but by teaching the skills of, of um, nonviolent conflict uh, reduction and transformation, unarmed accompaniment, and so on, that can do a great deal to reduce the likelihood of, of escalating violence. So you're working closely with, I love this name, the Dicastery for the Promotion of Integral Human Development at the Vatican. Now, that's a very complicated term, but it's a very deep, deep uh, vocation when you really unpack that. So what are the areas of greatest focus for the Vatican and the Pope now in response to this COVID-19 pandemic? What are you hearing? Well, as you may have seen on the news, the Pope Francis himself actually has created um, a special task force to to help him do the kind of creative thinking that would enable an articulation of response, both short-term and long-term. I think they're calling it the Vatican COVID-19 response team. And that response team is being led by the dicastery that you just uh, described and even that is a significant move because what it, what what the Pope Francis is suggesting, I believe, is that this pandemic, the the reality that it is creating, the problems that it's revealing, the solutions that will be required, describe a very complex reality. And so, it will be important, he believes, and the dicastery is playing this out to be both. What does he use the word agile? and adaptable in thinking about how to respond. And so, for example, he has brought together what is a a quite large collection of people working in different fields with very different kinds of expertise uh, to help him respond short-term and long-term. So a couple of examples. In the beginning, because they knew that the external debt of many countries was an incredibly heavy burden and that the International Monetary Fund and and other major players in the field of global finance were going to have a meeting uh, right early in the the sort of period in which the pandemic began to reveal itself. First thing they talked about at a global level was the need to deal, to cancel with, or to at least put a moratorium on the debt, the external debt of uh, the poorest countries. The next thing that he talked about was unemployment, because it was clear that the that the level of unemployment was just astronomical, and that the reality of employment in many countries, where people, or in including our own, where so many people earn every day just what they need to live on, that it wasn't going to be impossible for people to isolate themselves without any work for a long period of time. And so the second topic that they focused on was on on work, on labor, on on, on unemployment. When he talked that week, he he raised the question of a a universal basic income. 
that got a lot of attention. And he he raised that in a in a talk with representatives from social movements. So his his message is a message that resonates with with grassroots people struggling to survive. Well, in an Easter letter, an Easter letter, he wrote that this universal basic wage, quote, would acknowledge and dignify the noble essential tasks you carry out. It would ensure and concretely achieve the ideal, at once so human and so Christian, of no worker without rights. In his Easter letter, he said that. It's great. It's really, it is phenomenal what he's, what he's trying to do. And what's really interesting about this whole process is that, that he is, it's been his style all along to um, begin with experience, to start by listening to people. And he's done that well in some places and not so well in other places. But on this one, he has brought these task forces together. I'm on one on um, security and peace. And he's, he's brought these task forces together and that are instructed to bring the experience from the grassroots in different parts of the world into the conversation, which is, it's a phenomenal way to try to find a way through this really uh, huge uh, complexity. Obviously this week he's, and, and last week and this week, he's been talking about food insecurity because the, he knew about this uh, pretty terrifying prediction of famine at a very significant level in the world. So the fascinating process that's underway is one of both responding to the immediate need, trying to point to what what countries are needing particular attention, what sectors of the different populations, but then he's also pointing us toward the future. What can we stir our imaginations to imagine a future where we actually deal in a way that is just with the huge problems that are being exposed now. I can't tell you how many people I have heard from, from different countries in Africa and Latin America, Middle East, who have are watching what's happening in our country, what happened in Italy and Spain and, and China and so on, and who are saying, if this virus hits us at that level, we have zero capacity to deal with it. We have no ICU. We have, you know, two ventilators. We have, we simply don't have the capacity. Pope Francis is, is sort of all the time reminding us of that, all the time pointing to new structures, to new ways of building our society, of honoring the common good, of respecting the dignity of every life. And then he keeps pointing toward his wonderful encyclical called Laudato Si, where he talked about all life being interconnected. Um, you talked about the life of the planet and the life of the human community as intrinsically interconnected, which of course it is. So he keeps pointing in that direction. So here's Francis. Here's a Pope talking again and again about the grassroots, the grassroots. That really strikes me. There's probably no better singular representative of the global nature of the body of Christ in the Catholic Church. <laughs> and so here you are in conversation with colleagues and friends in different countries all over the world about this pandemic and what it means for people at the grassroots. That is extraordinary to me. It is really. It's, it's, it's phenomenal because it, at least in my experience, and I've been, I've, as you've said, I've, I've worked internationally for decades, but 
I still can get very sort of isolated and focusing on my own family or my own community or my own neighborhood. And it is such a gift to have this body of Christ, as you said, this global body of Christ, constantly reminding us that all is not well, that we can do better. And hopefully we will as a result of this. So, so he's seeking information from around the church and around the world on where we go in the aftermath of this crisis, how we can use this moment, which has revealed the brokenness of our governments and systems, to move forward to a more just and equitable future for us all. I mean, what could be the key learnings that come out of this papal Vatican search and process for finding how we learn to fix what's broken going forward. Yeah, great. It's it's a it's a tremendous we have a tremendous challenge before us and we have the possibility of responding in a way that is at the depth and scale that's necessary. It's not the usual pope's approach. Uh, at least in my experience. And it's just fascinating to have him literally saying, be creative, think big, imagine what's possible. And I, I think that is at least, it's at least worth a try. And I hope that it will make a contribution to the task that will be before all of us in the coming years. As you often have taught us, who you listen to is important, not just if you're listening, but who you're listening to. And he's trying to listen all over the world. Maybe the last question is coming back to your own community, those 14 people, and how every morning I know that you all get up for prayer. And what pieces, Marie, what pieces of scripture, for example, are sustaining during this this time? It, well, right now it's fascinating because we, we essentially do the lectionary readings of the day, in which is common across many traditions. So in this post-Easter time, we are reading about the Acts of the Apostles and sort of all of the, the struggles, the very real um, ways that they tried to figure out what was the message? What, was, what, what were we supposed to learn from the life of this extraordinary man? And I, from the immediate post-Easter stories where Jesus was saying, go back to Galilee and see if you can figure it out this time. I feel like that's exactly what we're doing now, that we are listening to these stories of very ordinary uh, women and men who, in the years after Jesus lived on this earth, tried to figure out how to implement uh, the lessons that he taught. And I think for me right now, the, the greatest challenge is the Sermon on the Mount. It's what, how are we supposed to live on this planet as followers of Jesus who rebuild something that actually reflects those essential lessons about, about who we are. So that's the scripture that's really speaking to me right now. What a place to end this wonderful conversation. Thank you again, Marie, for joining us today. This is Jim Wallace with the Soul of the Nation. God bless you.